Would you please join with me in prayer as we break open the word this morning? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we have each and every week to sit at your feet, to hear from your word, to receive your sacrament of grace and truth to us. And we pray that as this word is brought forth this morning, you would continue to think through our thoughts, that my words would be yours, that you would bend our wills to your own, and you would take each and every one of our hearts and set them on fire with love for you and for your son, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. In Victor Frankl's seminal book, Man's Search for Meaning, he retells the story of a fellow German prisoner in a Nazi concentration camp. Frankl writes, a fairly well-known composer confided to me one day, Dr. I have had a strange dream. A voice told me that I could wish for something that I should only say what I wanted to know and all my questions would be answered. What do you think I asked? That I would like to know when the war would be over for me. You know what I mean, doctor? For me, I wanted to know when we, when our camp would be liberated and our sufferings would come to an end. Well, what did your dream voice answer? He whispered. March 30th. Frankel continues, when he told me about his dream, he was so full of hope. But as the promised day drew nearer, the war news reached our ears and made it apparently very unlikely that we would be freed on the promised day. On March 29th, he suddenly became ill. On March 30th, he became delirious lost conscious, and on March 31st, he was dead. To all outward appearances, he had died of typhus. Frankel concludes, but those who know how close the connection is between the state of mind of a man and the state of immunity of his body will understand that the sudden loss of hope can have a deadly effect. Any attempt to restore a man's inner strength had first to succeed in showing him some future goal. Well, from what we have studied over the past month in 1 Peter, it appears that the apostle not only comprehended Frankel's truth centuries beforehand, but he wrote of a higher hope, a more solid hope, a permanent hope, far beyond anything Frankel believed could ever exist. For Peter's hope is a living hope, grounded in the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter spoke of nothing less than the hope of a real heaven. And for his early readers, can you imagine you're in Nero's reign, your Jewish neighbors hate you, your Roman neighbors hate you, you what you believe is against the law. And you've just heard from chapter 1, 1, all the way to verse 12, that we have been born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That message could not have come at a better time for those churches. You see, they were spiritual exiles, verse 1. They had come to faith in Jesus, and they truly believed Jesus was, was going to return for them. 
but he hadn't. A long time had gone by. So I liken this, this ship, in the, the, liken these churches in a ship. They're on this ship. They're sailing along, trying to be faithful to the Lord. But the promised port of freedom is nowhere in sight for them. Their sails are a little tattered through the storms. And their vigor had died down. But there's this guy in the crow's nest named Peter. And he's looking out at the horizon. And he's calling out, get your head up. Your future is near. Have hope. From where I sit, your hope is alive. You see what's going on here? In fact, by the time Peter finishes his opening cry in verse 12, everyone below would have heard the fullness of their coming salvation. And we can only imagine how the early church received this. It must have washed over those churches like a warm summer sun. And so we first have, in verse 13, a call to set your hope, because it's a solid hope. Verse 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This response that Peter is looking for is, is hidden right in the middle of the verse. The command here is to set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you. As we're going to see, the tasks of preparing our minds, being sober-minded are the first ways in which we fulfill that calling. But grammatically, however, in the center of, of verse 1 is that phrase, set your hope fully on the grace that will be yours. It's an imperative brothers and sisters. In other words, he's commanding you to set your hope on that grace. If we don't understand that, we're going to miss Peter's entire point this morning. So from the opening words in verse 3, Peter's been moving toward the command to set our hope on the grace that is to come. He's going to return to this again and again and again throughout the letter. And I want us to think of this. He started in verse 3. He's caused us to be born again to a living hope. Verse 13, set your hope on the grace that is to come. Verse 21, your faith and hope are in God. It's like a bunch of Canadian geese flying over in the fall. I'm talking uh, 300 of them flying high. The one out in the front is flapping away, right? Because he's, he's hitting the current more than any of them. But because they're in this flying V formation, it's, it's, it's effective for them. They're all together. And so after a while, he bows out and goes to the back, and another one steps into the lead. They provide cohesion and symmetry for the whole flock by the way they fly. So this opening segment of Peter's letter possesses something of that beauty. At one end flies the phrase, since you have a living hope, verse 3. At the other end we have, your hope is in God, verse 21. And between them both, out in front, cutting through the air with powerful strokes is, therefore, set your hope fully on the grace that is set before you. 
So we arrive at that verse that holds Peter's thoughts in formation. So if verse 3 is the melodic line of the letter, the theme of the letter, and it proclaims this bold truth, verse 13 is the application of it. All right? The call is for struggling Christians in a weird world, a foreign land. Set your hope fully on the future of the coming of Jesus Christ. If we are ever to move past beyond a melancholy endurance into a positive engagement with our world, let alone enjoyment of life, we must become a people who know what it is to comprehend a solid hope in life's eternal future. Church history gives us lots of examples of this. The great Puritan John Owen's epitaph reads, while on the road to heaven, his elevated mind almost comprehended its full glories and joys. C.S. Lewis, in his book of heaven, writes, Our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door, which we have always seen from the outside, is no mere neurotic fancy, but the truest index of our real situation. And to be at last summoned inside would be both glory and honor beyond all our merits and also the healing of that old ache. Way to go, Clive. That's awesome. The question for us then is not, can this be done? But rather, how can we follow the flight of those exhilarating and heroic examples and exiles of earlier times. Because we're in the formation. You're flapping your wings. I see you. All right? Especially, how do we maintain it while we live in this foreign land? Fortunately for us, this passage today tells us how. Peter gives us Two marks of a life that, of solid hope, two distinguishing marks, and three motivations and how to live into them. All right? So let's look at these. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you haven't yet done so, to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to continue. Verse 13, the two marks of a decided, solid hope. First, a healthy mind, verse 13. In anticipation of setting our hope fully on the grace that is to be our, Peter writes, Therefore, prepare your minds for action and be sober-minded. That first little phrase about preparing mind for action is especially a vivid one. It captures the idea of ancient people who wore robes. And so if you're going to be dressed for action, you've got to pull up your robe, tie your belt, so you can run. All right? You ever seen somebody run in this dress? It's pathetic. Right? No. Those who distinguish themselves with a, with a solid hope are those who have learned to cultivate a healthy mind. If God is to have your heart, brothers and sisters, he must first have your mind. And that is increasingly a challenge in our day, is it not? 
The disciplined mind, Thomas Cahill, wrote about the shortcomings of the Dark Ages. Historian Thomas Cahill said, in their day, it was like this. The intellectual disciplines of distinction, definition, and dialectic that had once been the glory of men like Augustine were unobtainable to the readers in the Dark Ages, whose apprehension of the world was simple and immediate, framed by myth and magic. A man no longer subordinated one thought to another with mathematical precision. Instead, he apprehended similarities, balances, types, paradigms, parallels, and symbols. It was a world not of thoughts, but of images. And so it is with our day to day. We think with our eyes. And as a result, our minds are never made for running let alone a life of exile, flourishing in God's kingdom, called the Christian life. Martin Lloyd-Jones, that great preacher in London, expressed the disastrous results when you live the Christian life without your mind. He writes, no true Christian in his right mind will desire anything other than true holiness and righteousness. But if you want to be holy and righteous, we are told, the intellect is dangerous, and it is thought generally unlikely that a good theologian is likely to be a holy person. The apostles who wrote, stir up your mind, strive, fight the good fight of faith, and many such things, would be surprised to hear what some people now say about the higher life. If you teach that sanctification consists of letting go and letting God and let the Holy Spirit do all the work, then don't blame me if you have no scholars. And with smartphones and our decreased attention spans, do we need to say more? May we be digital minimalists. And so let me put the problem of acquiring the first distinguishing mark of a solid hope this way. Many of our churches across our land are not, are just simply wearing their robes too long. They're not hiked up. We must raise them up, tuck them in, make ourselves ready for running. The healthy mind is the means by which we fulfill Peter's command to us for a solid hope. He calls us to it as we ground our thoughts on the word of God. The next characteristic, verse 14 and 15, of a solid hope is holy living. That our lives don't look like those around us. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. So holy conduct is a distinguishing mark of those who have set their hope on the grace that's to be revealed at Christ's coming. Holy simply means set apart for the Lord, so different from the world. When we live our lives that are modeled on God's holy character, we demonstrate that we've internalized the call to set our hope on the grace set before us. Conversely, when we find ourselves trapped in our rebellion, trapped and enslaved to sin, when all we do is continue to grasp at the pleasures of the world, 
we reveal to the world and to God that we place too little value on the grace that's offered to us in Jesus Christ. That's the cheap grace that Bonhoeffer speaks about. By wallowing in the husks of earthly pleasure, we are saying, in effect, that we despise the better wheat and the rewards of the next world. So those are the two major observations that make from this text about holy living. The first is holy living, or the Christian's conduct, becomes the subject matter for the rest of Peter's letter. We're going to see this over and over and over. He talks about it seven times in the letter. That we're not like the world around us. We're going to see him talk about sanctification, which is what this section is about. We're going to see a sincere love for others, both inside the church and outside the church. We're going to see a submission to unjust leaders. We're going to see a willingness to suffer. We're going to see service to God's new family. So the second observation from this text about holy conduct is that it's the mark of an authentic Christian. And notice the familiar nature of Peter's terms, verse 14, as obedient children. Verse 17, and if you call on him as father, that God puts the mark of his holiness into our lives of his children is nothing less than what Peter celebrated back in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're his children. So what does this mean for us? It means that if God is not your father, living a holy life will be impossible because holy conduct is the fruit of being a member of the family. We simply don't possess the power to be holy in our own strength. We don't have the genetic makeup. That's why Peter will say in verse 18, by way of contrast, you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. Understanding God as your father is crucial in this whole passage. The late Dr. Packer underscored this when he wrote, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. You can hear Dr. Packer. If this is not the thoughts and prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. That's a spot on. I'm good at that. (laughs) He was amazing. See, if we're in Christ, brothers and sisters, we're born into a new family. You're in the family in Christ. He's adopted you. God is our father. And ironically, this should be great news for those of us who had a poor father, earthly father. Of all people, these more readily than most should be drawn to the idea of God as father. Here is one who gives and gives and gives over and over, never takes and never abuses. And so... We're called to reflect a healthy mind and holy living. So what's the motivations for these? So Peter gives us three motivations to live into this way, because we all look at those, well, I'm not very holy. I don't have the best 
thought life in the world. Well, well Peter's not going to leave us alone. Let's look at these. Verse 16, he says there's three motivations, starting with God's holy character. Take a look at these verses, 15 and 16. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Alluding right back to Leviticus 11.44, those of us in the 915 group a couple weeks back were in Leviticus. It can be like drinking sand, you know. But Leviticus land is a really nice place when everybody lives into the realities of it. And in doing so, Peter selects an ancient text in which God commands his people to be distinct from the world. Our values are not the world's values. They're distinct. After all, we're to be his people. And we're possessed with his good character by the power of the Holy Spirit. As his children, should we not desire to grow up to be like him? Christians ought to be motivated in holiness by the desire and opportunity to reflect God's character. The second motivation, verse 17, if, if that's not enough, Peter says, well, then you just need to think about being judged by God. Verse 17, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Each of us in God's family needs to be careful how we live because we all have a father who is absolutely impartial in his judgments. This truth alone ought to protect me from presumptuous sin. And, and let me put this out there plainly. If anyone is thinking, oh, I can do this and just get away with it because God will forgive me. I'm his child. He's my father and therefore my friend. That's a very dangerous ground to walk on. That's cheap grace. The idea of having God as father leads Peter to the exact opposite. Because he's my father, I listen to him. It was never fun when Annie Sherman said, wait till your father gets home. My mom always disciplined me. But if she was just going to let dad take care of it, it was worse. It was worse. So the idea of presumptuous sin is not even a thought in the believer. Peter motivates us to live this out in fear. That's a holy reverence, knowing who he is. And he still is gentle and lowly to me. He still loves me. But we recognize who he is. The last motivation is bottom line. If that's not enough for you, God loved you so much as to die for you in Jesus Christ. Verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Don't you love how he holds up the work of Jesus Christ for us? I especially love that he takes silver and gold, those precious metals of our world, and says, the blood of Jesus is more precious than that. We were bought with a price. Our salvation cost Jesus everything. It's as costly, it's more costly than silver or gold. 
So honestly, ask yourself, do you really need any more motivation than that to live unto the Lord in holiness? You see how Peter is in the crow's nest? You get what I'm saying now? Okay? They're struggling. They're struggling. They need encouragement. Keep on. He wants us to do one thing, to set our hope on the grace that is brought to us the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the two distinguishing marks are a healthy mind and a holy life with the motivations of God's holy character, knowing our impending judgment, and ultimately Jesus' sacrifice compels us to live unto the Lord. I'll tell you somebody who lived unto the Lord well. The one-foot-tall mouse, Repachit. I, I, I was talking to Lisa Crack. I go, he was one foot tall? She goes, yeah. I go, that's not a mouse, that's a rat. If you read The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, you just fall in love with Repachit. He's swashbuckling, brave, skilled with the sword, never going to allow anyone to speak of Aslan incorrectly, for Aslan is his lord and master. He, he's the most brave. If you don't love Reepicheep, you don't have a pulse. And so as the journey closes, the dawn treader is sailing to Aslan's country, where Lewis writes, the current drifted them steadily to the east, None of them slept or ate. All that night and all the next day they glided eastward. And when the third day dawned, with a brightness you or I could not even bear if we had sunglasses on, saw the wonder ahead. There were the mountains outside the world. These were the warm and green, full of forests and waterfalls, however high you looked. And there came a cool breeze from the east, tossing the top of the wave into foamy shapes. No one in the boat doubted they were now on the border of Aslan's country. Rebuchip says, boys, this is where I go alone. Takes his sword off and says, I won't be needing this anymore. So he gets into his little boat, takes a paddle, catches the current, rides the wave up, and then for a split second, they see him, and then he vanishes to the other side. And since then, no one can truly claim to have seen Reepicheep the Mouse. But my belief is that he came safe to Aslan's country and is alive there to this day. Isn't that great? I'm crying. <laughs> Do you long for Reepicheep's reward? Don't be discouraged about, you know, America and our exilic existence. The church has been here before. You have been born again to a living hope in Jesus Christ. Set 
your hope on the grace that will be revealed to you fully when he comes again. And may the bow of your ship always be pointed to the point of heaven where warm mountains await your eternal exploration. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, we come to you this morning with that desire on our hearts. We pray you would help us to set our hopes not on what we can do, but on what you have already done for us by redeeming us on the cross. Not on our own agendas for our lives, but on your plans for us. Not on what we think we deserve, but totally upon your unmerited favor upon us by your grace. Thus, Trusting you, you make us our adopted children. Therefore, Lord, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.